Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. So we're back this week with the second instalment of a chat that we've had with Mark. Mark is a paediatric intensivist at the Royal Hospital for Sick Children in Glasgow. He's a consultant in paediatric critical care transport at Scottstar, and he's one of our responder support clinicians. Mark was talking to us last week about a real mix of paediatric respiratory conditions, and he's back to continue that chat this week, starting, I think, with the tiny topic of wheeze. Mark, over to you. So let's move from the much, much smaller kids to, I guess, a really common problem with kids, and that's wheeze. And I'm deliberately not using the A word because... Great. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, they're wheezy and somebody else can make that uh, differentiation. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So it's important that we don't add over the A, the asthma word, unnecessarily, because it's, it's a, a diagnosis now that's formally made by someone who's a specialist in respiratory diseases, a respiratory paediatrician, say, because we don't want to label a child unnecessarily, because it could be viral induced wheeze or wheeze that's due to something else. So wheeze is the, the correct terminology, so I'm, I'm quite happy with that. Good stuff. Okay, so... In terms of presentation, I'm assuming that these kids are going to be breathing faster than normal for their age. They've got increased work of breathing, and you have that sort of polyphonic, um, high-pitched noise that, when you listen to their chest, potentially audible across the room. Yes, it's exactly as you portray it there. The only thing is, if you've got life-threatening wheeze, you may not hear any wheeze because you're actually not shifting much air. So you can be falsely reassured in the sounds reducing the biphasic wheeze that you're talking about, or the expiratory wheeze. If it sounds reducing, it could be two things. They're getting better, or they're getting worse. So there's a double-edged sword there. <laughs> that's, that's not very reassuring at all. Yeah, no. So just remind me, whereabouts in that sort of airway tree are we getting wheeze? It's the bronchioles, bronchi. It's where you're going to get the wheeze. Things that trigger it, I'm guessing inflammation or perhaps infection? So the, there may well be a trigger. So this is where it needs to be teased out at a later date what's causing this. Is it viral, viral-induced wheeze? That's very common in children. Is there an allergen component to it? Is there um, household products that's causing it? Is it changes in climate outside? Is it cold and dry that's causing it? So there's things that could cause it, triggers they're called which may well help in the history, but I don't think it's going to change what you're going to do for the management per se. The only thing to think about wheeze is if you've got, it comes back to our first thing with foreign bodies, if the foreign body is quite small and it's gone down, you could have wheeze on one side of the chest because there's a foreign body sitting in one of the bronchi. So it's a, it's a rarer cause, but it's something to think about. So we're going to do our standard assessment of the child. And let's assume for the sake of argument that this kid is working really hard, they're looking a bit pants, starting to get pale, and and yet respiratory rate is, is significantly raised. What are the concerns with wheels? What are the sort of things that actually get us deep into trouble? 
So I think what you were talking about here is light fest and the asthma, where they're starting to decompensate. They're getting tired. The saturations are going to be falling. They may well have difficulty in, in making sentences, or they may have apneas if they're little. They're going to look cyanotic. The saturation will be low uh, at that point. And the respiratory effort is going to worsen. So initially, it's going to be a high respiratory rate, which we were talking about then. But then it's going to slow down, and then it may well stop. And if you get to that situation, if they have respiratory rest, it's very difficult to get out of that downward spiral, unfortunately. It sounds like at least one part of the problem is is the kid tiring and not being able to maintain the respiratory effort. My understanding is that there's also sort of problems around breath stacking. Can you just explain that for folks? So you've got an obstruction, and it's an expiratory problem, wheeze um, or asthma. So you have more of a problem breathing out, and it takes longer for them to breathe out. You can get the air in easily but then it's the component of getting it out so the breath stacking is take a deep breath in and you take a breath out but before you exhale completely you take another breath in and what happens the lungs start getting more filled over time and more distended and if you did a chest x-ray you'll see that the chest is hyper expanded in extreme measures say you had a cardiorespiratory arrest and say they got intubated obviously we're not going to do this pre-hospital on the children because we don't carry this, this equipment you may actually have to press on the chest to try and get some of the air to come out of the lungs because ultimately if you get breath stacking you're going to increase the pressure of the chest to a certain point that actually it may well reduce blood returning to the heart which you can see that's not a great situation to be in no no indeed Okay, what can we do to prevent us from getting there? What are our treatment options? I, I'm guessing folk are going to be pretty familiar with the basics, but how are we going to approach management of the wheezy kid? It's going to be oxygen and nebulizers, isn't it? Um, that's what's going to need to be done, and it's going to continue giving those and to hope they improve. And it's going to be a combination of salbutamol nebules and ipotropium nebules. Some people may have convivent, which is a combination of the two, but that's going to be the treatment of what's going to be required initially. There are other intravenous treatments that we can give, such as IV hydrocortisone. If they're in the severe end of it, if they're not so bad, you might want to consider giving oral prednisolone. We're talking about more of the severe patients here. And then some responders and advanced practitioners may well have additional drugs like IV magnesium that they are to give as well. So it's having a stepwise approach to the management but initially it's going to be nebulizers and with oxygen driven nebulizers we're going to give i think one of the nice things about this is that actually because those nebulizers take a while to run through you've actually got time to go and steal a guideline from somewhere and <laughs> and pull it up and work out what your next steps are going to be exactly so it is going to take time for the nebulizer to go in so you're actually doing something and hopefully it's going to work and by the time you've looked up the information you need it's hopefully not going to be required Fantastic. Am I right in saying that any kid who's had a severe episode of wheeze should probably be heading in for a, a look over by a paediatrician? 100%. I think if you've had to give the, some of the treatments that we've talked about there, I think they need to be seen by emergency medicine physician plus or minus a paediatrician and they need to be assessed. It may be they just need to be observed and given some advice and then some follow-up, but it may well need to be admitted to a children's ward for further management and observation. Um, and they'll be obviously assessing the severity, uh, as you would have done. So let's move on down the airway, right to the bottom to the alveoli, and look at pneumonia. Certainly in my head, that's 
mostly disease of, of older folk, but I see a lot more older folk than I do kids. Presentation in kids similar to older people? On a par, yes. Sometimes the history is, is not as obvious. And unlike older people, most of our smaller children aren't going to be smoking or vaping. We can include the adolescents that may be doing that, but most of our patients aren't going to have that. So presentation is going to be coughing. They may have productive sputum, but if they're little, they're probably going to swallow it. So you won't be able to see what colour their, their sputum is and temperature. And then all the respiratory things, tachypnea, so increased respiratory rate and increased work of breathing. And a little bit of history, depending on the age of the child. If they're bigger, you might get more history from them than the parents. But it may well be signs that you're going to pick up. And I guess what we're worried about here really is trending into sepsis territory, where you've got a proper sick kid who's got cardiorespiratory collapse secondary to sepsis. Is, is that fair? Well, that's fair. Um, it's unusual for children for that to happen, but it can happen uh, with some of the unusual bugs that, that might occur. But I think you know, on a population basis, it's pretty rare. Obviously, I'm a bit skewed working in paediatric intensive care. We see some of these children who've got pneumonia with some sepsis, but the numbers are whole are a lot lower compared to adults. Treatment-wise, pre-hospital, if we... See a kid who's working hard, have a listen to their chest, and we've got some good going, gungy sounding crackles on one side of the lung towards the base, plus a fever, and it's all kind of pointing in that direction. What do we want to do? So you want to do basic things. As always with children, basic things are going to make the biggest difference. So you want to make sure they're getting oxygenated, making sure their airway is sorted and in a good position, because if you're saying they're the more well side, they may be drowsy, they may obstruct their airway, dynamically you position them you've got to give some oxygen you may want to give some nebs and they've got wheeze associated with that it might help depending on the age of the child and we didn't really press on this actually with bronchitis and wheeze if you're less than one the nebulizers of salbutamol may or may not work so the beta 2 receptors that you've got in your bronchi don't get really well developed till about one year of age so give the nebulizer and see if it works or not and if it works great and if it doesn't really do much to the wheeze, and I'm thinking about bronchiolitis patients here, but also teeny weenies with a potential pneumonia, that if you continue giving the nebulizers, you actually may well make more tachycardic and not get rich relief from that. So that's a side point from, that we didn't say before about nebulized albumol. But you want to give some oxygen, plus nebs for children with pneumonia. And then if you're saying they're more than well, you may well need to get IV or IO access and give them a fluid bolus because they may have not been eating and drinking as well and being dehydrated and if you've got an element of sepsis you may be vasodilated so you may need to get access as well which is the only time we've talked about this so far in this whole podcast is you may well need to get intravenous or intraosseous access if you're not able to do that and it's needed. Talk about antibiotics so thinking about what respondents carry they've got some kefitaxime and they've got some benzyl penicillin they're the two choices of antibiotics we've got in the hospital that I work at um, we often give kefiroxine for, for, the, for the patients who get pneumonia. So kefitaxime is not far removed from that as a kefirosporin. So that's an antibiotic you may consider to give if you really think that this child is has got sepsis from chest. But I would say if they've got sepsis and you think there might be chest, but it might be something else that's going on, I think it's a good thing to do is give some antibiotics if you've got uh, a feeling that they've got a severe infection. I guess for the the more remote responders out there out in the islands or at the fringes of the mainland they will probably have access to a few more drugs 
through local pharmacies or because the GPs and carry a bit of a cocktail themselves. And in terms of advice for this, I'm guessing the paediatric wing of Scott Star will be good folk to talk to. Yes, so that, this is exactly. So we would expect to be getting a phone call. So if it's a very rural remote or if it's someone on the islands, you would be picking up the, the Scott Star number, the O triple three number that you can find easily accessible on the internet and speaking to Scott Star and we'd be giving you advice because there's going to be a protracted period of time this child's going to be with you and yes you may well have other antibiotics available that you can give and we can talk about that. In this day and age it would be remiss not to mention COVID and I don't kind of want to disappear down a rabbit hole. COVID in kids I get the impression it's not hugely severe? No it's not really hugely severe. Um, there's been very few number of children who've had COVID pneumonia and some children have had COVID with a pneumonia. Okay, so they've had a bacterial pneumonia, maybe potentially secondary to COVID, or they've had it with COVID. So it's not as clear cut as before. The, the patients that are at risk of pneumonia and with getting COVID respiratory problems are the, are the children who've got complex needs. So they've got a whole host of, of complexities normally. But these children are well looked after and usually been shielding. So there's not been a huge number. The biggest thing with COVID, and these numbers are small again, is something called PIMS-TS, and this is varying very far away from respiratory, but it's, it's causing heart and circulation problems. And I don't know if this is going to be a podcast to talk about PIMS-TS, because that's a whole podcast in itself. But COVID, in summary, has not caused much problems at all. And if it is causing respiratory problems, the management is the same as what you've done before. And we haven't talked about PPE at all in this. The assumption if you're doing an AGP is to use the appropriate PPE. But that's the essence of, of COVID in, in children. There's very small numbers. It makes life slightly easier. Okay, so that's taken us from, I guess, from the lips when we were talking the, the other day about anaphylaxis right the way down to the alveoli. There's a couple of bits that I do want to just touch on whilst we're thinking about respiratory problems because they present in a respiratory way. And the first of those is is pneumothorax. Spontaneous pneumothorax, pretty rare in kids, is that right? Yes. Bigger patients and more fans might get a spontaneous pneumothorax and the asthmatics may get a spontaneous pneumothorax and thinking of bigger kids here. There have been a, a couple of children of older, two-year-old, three-year-olds who've had bronchiolitis, which is unusual, but that's because they've not been exposed because of COVID. Uh, and they've had quite... Significant coughing caused this, and they've got a spontaneous pneumothorax, which has led to surgical emphysema, and it's been a handful of children like that. So it's pretty rare to get a pneumothorax, except for those risk groups. And I'm guessing for the basics responder, it's just going to be a question of managing it symptomatically, giving some oxygen if needs be, and only thinking about intervening if they are in that sort of extremist tensioning type bracket. Absolutely, and often you don't need to intervene because specifically if they are tensioning. The biggest risk in children is doing a needle decompression when they don't have a tension pneumothorax and then you get an iatrogenic pneumothorax. So if you did proceed to do that, the advice for children is to put a freeway tap on the end of the cannula that you've put into the chest, the midclavicular line, second intercostal space, and aspirate the air afterwards and then to lock off the freeway tap because you've got a significant risk you're actually going to entrail more air, or it may have not been pneumothorax in the first place, then you've caused a pneumothorax. So that's slightly different how you would manage it in compared to, to adults. And you're going to use a standard Venflon. If you do get forced into that situation, there's a high clinical concern there's a pneumothorax, you're not going to use the ARS needles, because they're significantly larger <laughs> uh, and wider than normal. So you use pink or blue Venflon. Fantastic. 
I guess the last thing that I've got on my little list here is a little bit of a curveball in terms of cardiac problems, and specifically, yes. I guess, congenital cardiac problems. Am I right in saying that the first presentation of, of cardiac disease is quite often respiratory in nature in small kids? It can be. So if you've got cardiovascular systems in the respiratory system are all eloquently whole, really. So if you get decompensation of one, you're going to have to compensate in some way. So we've talked about respiratory so far, and the only way your body is potentially going to compensate is if you've got respiratory problems, increase your respiratory rate, and then you increase your heart rate. Let's flip it on the other side. And you've got problems with your heart, you've got some congenital problem where blood is mixing or going a different way than it should do. What's going to happen is you need to compensate some way to get more oxygen to go around the body. So you've got problems with the blood going around the body, so the only way you're going to get more oxygen to go around is to get more oxygen into that blood. So and that's increase your respiratory rate uh, to compensate. And you can get that in cardiac failure and you will look the same as if you had pneumonia essentially or, or the, other, the other problems we've, we've talked about. And it's increased respiratory rate, increased work of breathing. Now, one way to differentiate from this is, is something called a hyperoxia test. So you give some oxygen in a face mask with a reservoir bag and if it is cardiac, you should see the saturations go maybe from 88% up to the 90s if it's cardiac, usually. And if it's respiratory, you're not going to get that because you're not going to get oxygen to transfer across the alveoli if it's a respiratory problem. So that's one way to differentiate it. But you have to be cautious with the use of oxygen if you think it may be cardiac disease because there could be some uh, congenital cardiac problems where actually giving oxygen will make the situation worse. Just add to the complexity here for you as well. So oxygen may not be the correct treatment. Things to give it away, if you're able to examine the abdomen, is to see if there's a, if there's a liver there. If there's a large liver there and having the feel for the pulses and the groin and the arms, and if there's asymmetrical pulses or you've got a large liver, they need to be things that are hinting towards more of a cardiac problem. And that, for me, is definitely going to be into into phone a friend territory and treat with a lot of diesel and get them as far out of Perthshire as I can. <laughs> well, yes and no. It may well be taking them to the nearest place and then then other people doing extra stuff to work out what's going on and some blood tests and then potentially getting them transferred to another hospital. So, yes, but sometimes they may not be as bad as you fear and they just go to somewhere else for a bit more time to work out what's going on. But you are right, some of them on the severe spectrum do need to be moved to a tertiary hospital. Fantastic. We've covered a huge amount of ground there. As with all these things, I'm going to get you to give three top tips for responders going to the paediatric respiratory patient. What would your suggestions be? I think taking your time asking some questions that we've talked about some pertinent things to try and work out where the problem is in the respiratory tract for the parents or the caregivers is extremely helpful and the history will give you some hints to what the problem is. Keeping it very simple and we've not talked about many drugs here at all that's important it's about keeping it simple and not trying to do clever things immediately and if they've got an upper airway obstruction it's trying to have a non-threatening manner and trying to keep the child and the family calm and wafting oxygen. Fantastic. Mark, thanks so much for taking us through that and breaking it down into bite-sized chunks. My pleasure. Thank you very much again. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. 
Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.